Okay, we're almost halfway through January 2024 already. How are those resolutions going? I'm rooting for you. I really am. Especially if you've resolved to cut back on or cut out alcohol from your life completely. I have always been kind of an on and off drinker. I've had periods in my life where I've just randomly decided to stop and then times when I've picked it up again. But I stopped drinking fully in October of 2022, and it was for a variety of reasons. So this is Sid Robinson. She's a writer living in Brooklyn, New York. And you've certainly noticed what she said. Sid isn't just trying out a dry January. She hasn't had a drink for more than a year. And why is that? Well, one reason... Even though she's just 27 years old, drinking often made Sid feel terrible the next day. I also have a family history of alcoholism. My mom is 10 years sober and a huge uh, motivator for me. And I think the biggest turning point for me was I left a relationship with someone because of their drinking. Sid tells us that she feels lucky that she could stop drinking alcohol by choice. However, it wasn't just a snap-your-fingers-and-voila kind of transition. You see, Sid says she was a social drinker. She could always live without alcohol if she wanted to, and she wasn't drinking every day. But Sid was also, or is, still is, an introvert. Going out is fun for her, but only for a while, because before she stopped drinking soon, she'd feel that classic introvert exhaustion from having to put out so much energy in social situations. So to keep herself going, Sid often felt like she had to keep drinking. Now, the hard part for her wasn't giving up the alcohol. It was the way it changed her social life. At first, I was really discouraged. Like, I made the choice and I immediately started looking up places of community. Some of the only sober-centered things were like, I remember there was one that was a trip to the Statue of Liberty. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, I understand why young... Well, I, I understand why young people don't quit drinking. They feel like there's nothing to do. Eventually, Sid did find other alcohol-free groups. And she wonders if the pandemic might have helped those groups grow. Alcohol consumption went up during the lockdowns. But after that, Sid thinks people sought out new kinds of communities that weren't centered on drinking. And she says the relationships she's built in those communities are much stronger than the ones she tried to maintain with the help of Liquid Courage. Oh my God, so much more authentic. And and like, when you think about it, like even before I stopped drinking, the relationships that I really valued were ones that I had with childhood friends before alcohol was a thing, or with coworkers and you weren't drinking at work. Like all the relationships that had already mattered to me were not alcohol centered. That is such an interesting insight. Well, 15 months later, Sid's decision to give up drinking entirely has transformed her life. The biggest thing for me that I think I've developed is boundary setting, which is something I really struggled with in the past. Whereas now, like, if I'm out at a bar and people get to the point where, you know, everyone's slurring their words or repeating stories, like, I have no problem just, like, leaving. And I have no problem telling people, I don't really want to do that, but let's do something else in the future. And that has translated to 
my personal relationship, my work life. I have gotten a lot more into running. I started an events business with my best friend. Like I have so much time and I do so many more things. I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg, but the transformation I've seen in my life since I've stopped has been crazy. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It wasn't too hard to find someone like Sid. According to Gallup, the percentage of Americans overall who consume alcohol has remained steady over the past two decades, except in one group, younger adults between the ages of 18 and 34. In the early 2000s, more than 70% of that age group said they drink alcohol. Today, that's dropped by 10%, down to 62%. So, there's this question. The growth of the zero-proof lifestyle. Who's living it and what is driving it? We're going to talk about that today with Emily Nichols. She's a sociologist at the University of York in the United Kingdom. And she joins us from York. Emily, welcome to On Point. Oh, hi, Megna. It's lovely to meet you, and thanks for having me. Likewise. Now, when I uh, first cited those Gallup numbers, those were for Americans and uh, the change in alcohol consumption uh, in this country. But are you have you seen similar things in the UK or the, re- the rest of the world, or parts of the rest of the world at least? Yes, absolutely. So um, the part of the world that we tend to uh, refer to as the global north, so the UK, the US, uh, New Zealand, Australia and Europe, um, we've seen this pattern across all of these countries. Um, So decreases in drinking amongst the younger generation and drinking holding steady amongst um, older consumers. So it's definitely a much broader pattern than just the US, which I think is is very interesting. That is so fascinating because... uh, um, drinking or, or alcohol consumption is such a deep uh, part of the culture and, and social aspects of, mm-hmm. of so many of these countries. Can you tell me, first of all, let's just uh, focus on where you are. What have you seen in the UK? Um, so very similar patterns. And interestingly, hearing hearing Sid talk earlier um a lot of these themes coming through in research in the UK as well. So younger generations really moving away from alcohol, either drinking more lightly or not drinking at all, and often tying that into um, reasons of kind of health, well-being, um, but also ideas of having more time, being more productive, um, and being more authentic as well. So these very similar themes that seem to be emerging in the UK as well around people's kind of motivations and reasons for not drinking. Mm. So can you tell me a little bit more about when the, I mean, because the numbers I quoted were basically 20 years apart. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, and, and Sid mentioned this too, did, mo- did most of that growth in terms of the choice to, to either reduce or cut out alcohol come pre-post-pandemic when? Um, I think it's probably safe to say that this was in motion pre-pandemic. So the idea that drinking kind of peaked around the kind of early 2000s. We also saw um, young women's drinking, for example, increasing to catch up with the drinking practices and levels of young men. Um, And since the kind of mid-2000s, we've we've seen what uh, researchers have called to us referred to as a drinking decline. Um, So it's kind of been in motion before the pandemic, but it would be interesting to speculate and think about the ways in which the pandemic and that shift away from public drinking might have kind of accelerated that process as well, or, you know, changed the ways in which people socialize with and without alcohol. Okay. So one more thing about the trends then. Um, Are we seeing the reduction amongst young adults again, the reduction in um, the percentage of people drinking 
equal between the genders? Is it is it different based on socio socioeconomic status? Like, give me a little more granular understanding of who's choosing the alcohol free life. Yeah, I mean, I think there's variations, and I think interestingly, researchers are still kind of digging into you know, the nuances of this trend and wanting to be careful not to just say, you know, it's this blanket decline, you know, it's this really positive change. I think there are nuances there. But in terms of gender, I don't think we're seeing a huge gender difference. Um, there is a bit of a gender difference in the kind of communities that, that young people might be accessing, which we can certainly talk about. But in terms of levels of drinking or, or the decline, I think that's holding stable across genders. Um, socioeconomic class, again, changes across the board, but differences perhaps in how people are accessing support, communities. Um, and so I think age really is the key factor here in terms of where we're seeing this kind of polarization with young people drinking less and older cohorts tending to, you know, as I say, hold steady or perhaps even drink more um, as in recent years. Yeah. Okay. So just so that folks know, we didn't just pick the Gallup poll uh, as our reason for, for doing this conversation. Um, Emily, as you said, there's a, there are a number of surveys and studies out there that sort of uh, uh, indicate this, the same trends. There's one from the University of Michigan here in the United States that found that the share of college-age adults abstaining from alcohol has grown to 28% over the past couple of decades. So we're looking at almost a third of college students, according to this University of Michigan study. And then another one from a company called Berenberg Research. They said that about 20 percent that Gen Z are drinking 20 percent less alcohol than millennials did at their age. So that's actually a very short term, um, a large change over a very short period of time. Um, Emily, I'd love to dig in a little bit more into the whys, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you, You quickly went through some of the reasons, but let's talk about them uh, individually. What would you think is the largest driver for this right now? Again, I think there's probably variations, um, particularly across different contexts and perhaps for different individuals. But um, to me, I think that there's an increasing kind of pressure and expectation on young people to to be always on. Um, so a group of researchers in the UK have called this hustle culture. You know, the idea that young people can't really have downtime in the same way that they used to. They need to be kind of working on a side hustle, um, that there's an increasing sense of anxiety for the future and a need to kind of get ahead and, and perhaps to be your kind of best self, if you like. So this idea that, that young people can't actually afford to have a hangover um, or can't afford to have a heavy night of drinking um, because one's leisure time needs to be used product, uh, productively. Um, so I think there's a real sense that, you know, much as we might celebrate the decline in youth drinking, I think it is also bound up with some of these perhaps more negative factors like young people feeling that they can't switch off and relax with alcohol or use alcohol in the same way as older generations might have done. Oh, wow. OK. Have you have you spoken to uh, to people who told you that's one of the main, one of the reasons why they've stopped drinking? Yes, absolutely. So one of the key findings in in my most recent research, which was looking at um, no and low alcohol drinks and why people drink them, um, one of the main reasons that my participants gave, particularly the younger participants, was this idea of needing to be productive the next day. Um, so one of them literally said, you know, I can't afford to have a hangover. I've got a, my own independent business that I run on a weekend alongside my nine to five job in the week, for example. So this idea of needing to be productive, needing to get out there and exercise, get up early, make the most of the day was really, really common across a a lot of the data that I collected and a lot of the people that I spoke to. Ah, okay. Well, I'm very glad that you pointed to that because that's not the first one that would have popped to mind when when, when thinking about this. So it gives us sort of a, a more realistic view about 
what's driving this trend. So Emily Nichols, hang on here for just a minute because there's so many more reasons that I want to investigate with you. And we'll also talk about the market that's rising up around uh, the alcohol-free movement, both in the United States and in many European countries as well. So we'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and I just want to take a moment to offer a very special hello to listeners in Northeast Florida. You're listening to us for the first time on WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville, and we are very delighted to welcome you into the On Point community. We want you to participate in every way possible, including sharing your stories with us, as On Point listeners across the country do And here's one way you can do that, because here's a heads up for a show we're working on for next week. I'm going to offer you a quick thought experiment here. Let's say you commute to work, and you begin that commute at about 7.30 in the morning, so that you're at work by 9. I'm presuming it's a long commute, okay? And your colleague, however, is working from home, and they also start work at 9, but they didn't have that 60 to 90-minute commute. The two of you get the same wages. Is that fair? Well, more workers are saying, no, it is not, and they want to get paid for their commute time. So we want to know, what do you think about that? Workers, describe to us your commutes and if you think you should get compensated for it. And employers, we also want to hear from you. What are the arguments for that and against it from your point of view? So you can share us your thoughts, your stories, and your messages on the On Point Vox Pop app if you don't already have it. Go to your app, wherever you get your apps, and look for On Point Vox Pop. You can also leave us a phone message at 617-353-0683. So this is for a show for next week about whether workers should be compensated for commuting. Today, we're talking about the growth of the zero-proof lifestyle or the alcohol-free movement, especially amongst younger American adults and younger adults in many other parts of the world. And Emily Nichols joins us. She's a sociologist at the University of York in England. Uh, Emily, a couple more reasons which I'm seeing um, young people share about why they've decided to stop or or drastically reduce drinking. And one of them is actually a strange positive uh, uh, unification between health awareness and social media. I'm seeing a lot of uh, young folks, Gen Zers, saying, well, due to social media, uh, we want to be healthier. We're working out more. 
Uh, and we get all these messages all the time about the, you know, the negative effects of alcohol on the body and how that's informed their decisions. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I'm reporting similar findings in my own data collection that health, both mental and physical, are a huge factor in decisions to stop drinking or reduce drinking. I think younger people are much more aware, as you suggest, of the kinds of impacts of alcohol on the body and the associated health risks. And I think we see an interesting divergence here where in relation to kind of mental health and well-being, older generations might have actually used alcohol as a coping mechanism, whereas the younger cohort associate alcohol with risks to both mental and physical health. So they move away from using drinking in that way. Um, I've certainly found in my own research that amongst the young people I've spoken to, there is definitely discussion of physical health, but actually mental health has come through more significantly. Um, maybe there's variation here across different countries and settings. Um, and it's not to say that physical health is not important. But for me, what's really struck me is the associations they make between excessive drinking and poor mental health and the kinds of proactive choices they've made to stop drinking or reduce drinking to kind of manage that. Mm, I think that that is a commonality uh, across the Atlantic uh, here also in in the United States, Emily. You, you know, um, I'm also wondering if a significant factor is that if if not alcohol, there actually still are uh, other options. Here in the United States, one particular option has grown dramatically in its availability and legality. Uh, for example, there's been some articles written uh, in the U.S. where young people are saying, well, I've given up drinking. However, I, I will you know, occasionally take cannabis because, A, it's legal and I can, and I can get it. And it provides some of the, uh, the sense of uh, you know, a momentary pause or, or relaxation or, or what have you that alcohol once did. But they believe that it's a better way to achieve that. What do you think? Yeah, you know, this is such an interesting question. And the number one thing I get asked when I say that young people are drinking less is, okay, what are they doing instead? Are they doing drugs? Are they engaging in other so-called risky behaviors? Um, and I guess the picture might be quite different in places like the States, um, but certainly in the UK and other parts of Europe where, um, well, most of Europe, where the rules around and legislation around marijuana use are much stricter, we're actually not seeing a transfer to other kinds of substance use. And actually we're seeing a decline in risky behavior, if you like, across the board. So young people taking less substances of all kinds, engaging in less risky sexual practices, for example. Um, but it would be interesting to think about whether there is some variation there in countries where, you know, marijuana is legal. Um, so I'm not sure about that exact picture. But it, overall, I think we are seeing a decline in all those kinds of behaviours. Mm, that's so interesting. Just to, to put a data point on what's happening here in the United States, uh, obviously the use of can cannabis amongst younger adults has grown with its legality and, and availability. The federal government uh, says that almost 30 percent of young men and women across the country uh, say they use cannabis or they use uh, marijuana at least occasionally. So uh, almost 30 percent of young people here. So you said that there's also a decline in overall risky behavior, Emily. Very interesting because I hear, you know, sort of in the zeitgeist, I hear a lot of people say, well, it's because these these people, uh, these generations are really perfectly digital natives, right? They're just on their phones all the time. They may be home more often. Everything they need, they can get through streaming or through apps, et cetera, that it's just... Um, a reduction in adventurousness, maybe I can put it that way, that we're seeing that is partially translating into the choice of uh, living a zero-proof life? 
Yeah, I think there's definitely something there. Um, so we're seeing a lot of shift of um, a shift to socialising online, for example, to video games, um, young people socialising more at home, um, remotely with their friends. So I guess alcohol might have less of a place if you're socialising online or playing video games. Um, also, with young people staying at home longer, we're seeing research reporting changes in parenting style, where parents are being less permissive. So young people have less access to alcohol in the first place. They might be socialising less in public spaces where they you know get their hands on alcohol underage and we know that certainly young people are initiating dr drinking later so i think yeah there's a, a whole kind of raft of changes that have kind of moved young people back into the home or kept them in the home for longer and more um where they're socializing externally less and, and that i imagine that's definitely impacting on young people's drinking or non-drinking practices huh Okay. Well, Emily, stand by for just a moment because we also want to talk about how with this pretty significant change um, that doesn't seem to be losing steam anytime soon, that there's there are new markets growing up uh, around that change. So let's talk about some businesses in particular. When we opened the Volstead in 2022, finding the brands to bring them into Philly at first was a challenge. Like we were like the only stop in Philly on their delivery route, right? Now, all of a sudden, like it's opening up other restaurateurs minds of like, oh my goodness, I had never thought of that. And there's money to be made by offering these other forms of, of drinks of these zero proof cocktails. So that's Arielle Ashford. She's the co-founder of The Volstead, the first zero-proof bar in Philadelphia, which opened in 2022. Since then, she's seen remarkable growth in zero-proof options from big alcohol makers themselves. Now, two years later, you have zero-proof White Claw. Like, that wasn't a thing a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know, you have these big brands that are taking notice, so... I think that's what's really exciting being on the other side is like, oh, these movements, this sober curious movement is absolutely making waves. Still, Arielle says that she thinks the zero proof drinks are in their infancy. The industry may be seeing an opportunity, but the demand the opportunity is trying to meet comes in waves. Dry January, sober October, like it is standing room only. You need to have a reservation like a month in advance. Like it's popping, right? Just like I think with most restaurants, depending on, you know, where in the nation you are, you have your up months and you've got your down months, right? But what I think is exciting is that then we have to remember there's also like pregnant and nursing moms, you know, they are just opting not to drink right now because of the life stage of their body right now. So there's always these different constituencies. Maybe there's friends who don't drink because of religious reasons. And like, we don't need to just like be othering for people who are not drinking for whatever reason. So we asked Ariel one more question. From mocktails to zero-proof beers and wines, is the alcohol-free movement here to stay? I think it's here to stay. I think we will continue to see um, numbers growing. I, you know, I really got to shout out like Gen Z really is like, they're looking at all the angles. Like they have stories from their parents or maybe aunties or uncles They've lived through some stuff and they want to make sure that they are like set up and moving through life in ways that they would be proud of. Um, so, hey, what's the natural next step? Zero proof drinks. Ariel Ashford, she's the co-founder of the Volstead, the first zero proof bar in Philadelphia. Now, Emily, I want to bring another voice 
into the conversation. Elva Ramirez joins us. She's a journalist and media consultant who covers spirits, hospitality, and the growing zero-proof industry. She's also author of Zero Proof, 90 Non-Alcoholic Recipes for Mindful Drinking. Elva, welcome to On Point. Hello. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. First of all, how would you describe uh, the growth in zero-proof sales amongst uh, alcohol makers? Well, it's, let's put it this way. So sometimes the no and low categories are grouped together for uh-huh. market data. So low, low meaning low ABV, which would be something like a Campari or a Vermouth. So a number that I can give you is that in terms of the no and low markets, it's valued at $10 billion in research right, uh, and retail right now. So that's a lot of money. And that's, of course, combining those two categories. But it definitely shows the momentum behind the interest in no uh, in non-alcoholic uh, spirits and you know uh, non-alcoholic spirit substitutes. So the market is growing. And one other really quick number I'll throw at you because um, these stories that you've been sharing are absolutely fantastic, and they're they're talking a lot about if you if you look at it from a really big picture point of view, it's really about consumer choice. It's people want more choice. They want more options. And um, one of the biggest drivers of the non-alcoholic market actually are people who still drink. Mm. So, so about the IWSR, um, IWSR and Distill Ventures released a study in October of 2022, and they found that about 82%, over 80% of consumers who drink non-alcoholic cocktails also drink alcoholic, alcoholic or traditional cocktails. And so people are just want more options. They want to be able to have the freedom to switch back and forth and be able to extend their nights. So even it, I liken it to the success of Oatly, for example, or Impossible Burger, okay. where people who, you know, people who still want oat milk might also still drink dairy. I see. No, that, that's a really good uh, metaphor for it. You know, actually, I think we should uh, pin down some definitions here because you're you're right when you said low or no. I haven't we haven't actually described what that is. So how would you what is no alcohol? Is is that truly zero proof or below what 0.5%? Like what is it? Even lower. It's it's it's, it's a little hazy, but it's about it's about less than 1%, let's put it that way. So it'll be the non it'll be the completely non-alcoholic um beers, beers and spirits and um distillates like Seedlip for example. They they will they basically um, we'll, cr- we'll go through the process as of to make a fermented or, or, or a distillate, but they stop before the alcohol actually comes into the equation. So you, it will have that complexity and that mouthfeel and the, the botanicals, but they stop the process before the, um, the alcohol actually comes into play. And then low is things that do have alcohol, like Campari is, a, is, a, is an example of vermouth. And I only bring that up not to muddy the, the, the conversation, but only because that, dat- that data point that I mentioned it, it combines the two, but it just, I wanted to point out that it is $10 billion and there is significant interest in people, you know, drinking less. Compare that $10 billion, though, to the overall alcohol market. Pick your country or worldwide, because while $10 billion sounds big, my guess is that it's still small in comparison to alcohol sales overall. It is. And, you know, the, the martini isn't going anywhere. People still love the martini, but the the, the major distillates, or should I show the major, uh, alcohol conglomerates, including, I, I include here uh, spirits, but also people, the beer makers like Anheuser-Busch, they are predicting that uh, in the next few years, by 2025, 2030, non-alcoholic products will make up as much as 30% 
of their total sales. So and they, that's why many, um, there are small small businesses such as uh, Ritual Whiskey, or uh, Ritual, I should say, that comes out of Chicago. But there's, um, you know, Heineken has a, has a, has a non-alcoholic beer. Um, Anheuser-Busch has several non-alcoholic beers. Uh, and uh, Diageo, for example, is the majority um, majority investor in Seedlip, which really kind of kickstarted a lot of these non-alcoholic um, distillates for cocktails. Mm, okay. Uh, we're going to come back to some of those brands in just a second, but uh, at least here in the United States in 2022, I'm seeing that um, the sale of alcoholic beverages was it touched almost 260 billion dollars in that year. So it's it's a, a comparison point. Elva, hang on here for just a minute. Emily, can I turn back to you and just ask you quickly: Have you tried some of these products? Yes, I certainly have, um, and received multiple recommendations from many of my participants as well. Um, I think, you know, in terms of what Elva's been saying, the picture is very, very similar in the UK. Um, it's a growing market, so supermarkets have been reporting, you know, doubling of sales since 2021, for example. Um, and and I'm finding similar findings as well in terms that it's often people who still drink, actually, um, who are using these products. I, I call them hybrid drinkers. Um, and, and we're certainly seeing the, the particular growth in the beer se- segment. Um, and I can attest that I I think an alcohol-free or zero-proof beer tends to taste fairly close to the real thing. Um, spirits are kind of taking off, but I think at least in the UK, we've been a little slower on the um, zero-proof wine. Um, that's one thing where the taste and the mouthfeel perhaps aren't quite there yet. So I'd be really interested to see where where that market develops. Emily, I'm, I'm only smi- I'm smiling on this end of, of the radio because I completely agree about the wines. Um, <laughs> full disclosure, everyone, I actually decided to also go zero-proof uh, in October of 2022 and do not regret it one bit. But Elva, to the point that Emily made, uh, and actually Ariel, uh, the owner of the Volstead in, in Philadelphia, the different kinds of zero-proof drinks are very much in different phases of development. I completely agree with mm-hmm. Emily that uh, the the good zero-proof beers are excellent. They are very, very good. But the wines, ay, ay, ay. I mean, uh, mm. can you tell me a little bit more about, uh, I don't not, not the manufacturing process. Is there recognition amongst makers that they still have a long ways to go with some of these drinks? Yes. And if you, if uh, when Emily was speaking, I was nodding along saying, absolutely. She's uh, like co-signed everything she said. She's absolutely right. Um, Right now, what's interesting, and I, I can't really get into the process because everyone does things completely differently. And unlike, unlike, say, when people understand how gin is made, gin is sort of made kind of the same way. You tweak a little details. Non-alcoholic, they, they're really, they do everything. It's really, everyone's completely different. It's hard to predict how they choose to make their products. But I would say you can kind of, leaving wine aside for a second, but um you can either have things that are classicists that are made to represent a, a, a proper substitution, like a fake gin, or you have new flavors that are meant to be floral and just stand in and be completely new flavors. Yeah, I I, agree. I, I hear what you're saying. And um, thus far, I prefer the ones who are trying the completely new flavors because, I don't know, I feel like you need the, the actual edge of the alcohol for some of the liquors to actually get even close to how they're supposed to taste. But Elva and Emily, hang on for just a minute, because when we come back, we're going to talk a lot more, again, about the, the this sort of meeting point between the market and social aspects for the growing alcohol-free movement. That's in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. 
From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And since we are in the almost in the middle of January, I want to tell you some excellent news. The Jackpod is back in our podcast feed. And that's our wonderful podcast exclusive uh, from Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst, where Jack gives us his very unique take on events right now through his lens of literature, of history, and of politics. So we know a lot of you love the jackpot. We hope even more of you try it. Just go to the On Point podcast feed wherever you get uh, your podcast because the latest episode of The Pod is available today. Now, we're talking about on the main show here the rise in the percentage of young American adults and actually young adults in many other parts of the world, the rise in the percentage of them who say they no longer drink Alcohol. Emily Nichols joins us today. She's a sociologist at the University of York. And Elva Ramirez is with us as well. She, she's a journalist who covers spirits, hospitality, and the growing zero-proof market. And Emily and Elva, I have to say that when we told On Point listeners that we were going to do this hour, many of them said, yes, they are not exceptions to this movement. My partner and I have decided to reduce our alcohol consumption even before the turn of the new year. And... I just noticed that a lot of life is more boring. So both of us have decided that we have to go out and find entertaining things to do that don't involve alcohol and consciously decide to do those things rather than relying on drinking as the activity. I've been sober for about four and a half years now and probably in the best shape I've ever been in in my life. Mental health has greatly improved. I no longer have to treat high blood pressure. My relationships are better. And um, I seek more authentic connections with people. I stopped drinking at the age of 33. I'm 72 now. I have had an amazing journey without alcohol. I'm also active now in swimming five or six days a week. I do strength training three days a week. And the use of alcohol would really inhibit that. So I'm just very grateful. Those are On Point listeners Kevin in Framingham, Massachusetts, Kelly in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Mark from Watertown, Massachusetts. Uh, Emily, can I just uh, ask you quickly about the language that we use around uh, this movement or the increase in, in, um, in people choosing not to drink anymore? Because you heard 
um, you heard Kelly in that clip say, I've been sober for a, for about four and a half years. I don't know if uh, she had an alcohol dependency uh, challenge before that. But we also in, more casually hear the, fra- the phrase, you know, sober curious, et cetera, in terms of choosing not to drink. Now, I wonder what you think about that language because, you know, at least here in the United States, oftentimes the word sober or sobriety is associated with people who have struggled with alcoholism or alcohol dependence. But that's not that's n- not all of the people who are choosing to uh, to cut alcohol out of their lives. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's something I've explored in my own research and I know others have as well. Um, I think one thing we're certainly seeing is is a kind of attempt to, to reframe the language of sobriety or the terminology of sober in a more positive way. So, you know, these this kind of emergence or growth of online communities and spaces that are centered around, as you say, sober curiosity or mindful drinking and trying to kind of imbue sobriety with a more positive meaning. So, you know, the the idea of positive sobriety or sobriety as a lifestyle choice, I think, is quite key. Um, Interestingly, quite a few of my participants um, have pushed back against the word sober. Um, So I've, I've done research with recently sober, I suppose they wouldn't use those terms, but women who used to be quite heavy drinkers who stopped but didn't identify as having a problem, they didn't like the term sober. They thought it sounded kind of dull and boring. They actually liked the term alcohol-free because Mm -hmm. they thought it implied that a sense of freedom, a sense of living life without alcohol. Um, But I think that there's certainly variation and and, and these wider communities are pushing the language of of sober, you know, reclaiming the word sober and imbuing it with these kind of positive associations. Can you talk a little bit more about the differences between men and women? Because earlier in the show, you said that the communities that they gravitate towards when they decide to give up alcohol are, are are seemingly different. Yeah, I think we are seeing some variation here. So, and it kind of harkens back to what you were just saying about, you know, the kind of ideas of like problem drinking or alcoholism. So certainly with more traditional kind of recovery, if you like, communities such as Alcoholics Anonymous, they tended to be quite male dominated. But what we're seeing in this new emergence of online spaces and communities is they tend to be spearheaded by women. So much more kind of female dominated spaces. And of course, that's not to say that they are exclusively spaces for women, but we are seeing a little bit of gender variation in terms of who is kind of at the forefront of these movements and spearheading them, if you like. Mm. Elva, let me turn back to you because um, do you you think the makers kind of recognize maybe uh, some of these differences that Emily has been talking about and are responding to them? You know, there's one thing that I really like that Emily said is the power of language. And she's absolutely right. There is a lot of evolving conversation about what do we call these drinks? Um, The non-alcoholic drink, the temperance drink, has been with us since the beginning of cocktail culture. Mm -hmm. Temperance cocktails are part of the very first cocktail book that was published in the 1870s. So this idea of a non-alcoholic drink is not new. But the as as it evolves now what what differentiates this idea now is very much as in line with emily what you just said so there are there's ideas of like do we call them spirit free i went with zero proof um but zero like framing it in the positive because even even non-alcoholic has that no in the you know it still defines it vis-a-vis alcohol and then there's mocktail of course which Bartenders don't really like that word because they point out that mock means both to make fun of and it means fake. So I don't correct people. If you want to call it mocktail, that's totally fine by me. But, you know, language matters and how you how you present these things on a menu matters, especially if it's all about guests for and it's all about hospitality. Yeah, I'm a, I, I like zero proof myself because it's just a factual description of 
what is in the drink. Mm -hmm. And so then you can take it as you will. Uh, You can make your own interpretations around it. Now, Emily, there's another thing about how we can understand who's doing what here in uh, the zero proof or alcohol free movement. Uh, Is it uniform? Are the trends the same across socioeconomic lines? So this is the question that's really interested researchers, um, particularly because of something called the um, alcohol harm paradox, which is the idea that um, communities and individuals of lower socioeconomic status are disproportionately affected by the harms of drinking, even if they drink less, which they often do, than their middle class peers. Um, And what we're seeing here is that those who are drinking zero proof drinks, those who are accessing online spaces and communities tend to be of a higher socioeconomic status. so I've kind of talked about gender, class, race is also significant here as well. This this is a whiteness to the movement. Um, so there is a concern, I think, amongst researchers, amongst public health officials, that we might be seeing a widening of the um, alcohol harm paradox. That you know those who are traditionally most affected by the harms of alcohol are actually not the ones that are you know, accessing these groups and communities or purchasing these drinks, which I'm sure Elva will agree, are often priced, you know, at the same price point as alcohol. So they're not necessarily the most accessible products to all consumers. But they're but they are priced similarly, right? And so if yeah. uh, folks who who are of uh, you know lower socioeconomic status are still purchasing alcohol, it's not that they're saving money on still purchasing alcoholic I drinks. Th- I think that's true, but I think there's a perception that you sh- that it's worth paying more for alcohol. You're getting what you pay for. Whereas I think part of the part of the problem, perhaps, with some of the zero proof products is that people aren't prepared to invest. And so maybe that's not always connected to class, as you allude to. But people are more wary of paying, you know, the same price for a non-alcoholic uh, bottle of, of of gin alternative as they would be for gin. So maybe that's where some of the barriers are: is that people are potentially quite turned off by something that is priced the same as alcohol, um, and maybe the same in a bar. You know, mm-hmm. drinking a, an alcohol-free or a zero-proof cocktail, people are just kind of I think some people are wondering what they're paying for if they're not paying for the alcoholic component. Yeah, so this brings to mind, actually, Elva, I absolutely want to hear from you on the cost issue and and other things. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to jump in really quickly. Part of that, I think, has to do with education. The the consumer, because this is so new, they don't understand all the work that actually goes into making both the products and a non-alcoholic drink. And in many ways, the, there's more labor in terms of um, the raw materials and, and the the sort of behind the scenes, like what's going on in the kitchen and then the prep kitchen before you even get your drink. Because, for example, there is a, uh, a very famous bar that did a pop up. And when they did a pop up in New York City, all the drinks were the same, cost the same, regardless if there was alcohol in it or not. And but they explained, they said, you know, we make this non-alcoholic drink. It takes four days to make because we want this complexity and it's absolutely beautiful. And I'm happy to pay for that. And so I think as more bars start really kind of really, you know, dropping their souls and making these actually wonderful drinks that take several days to make, the consumer will be like, okay, this is a complicated drink. It's worth, it cost, you know, it, it, it costs just as much in terms of labor as a gin and tonic. So I'm happy to pay for this, but we're not there yet. The consumer is still a little leery of it because it's so new, but I'm, 
I'm hopeful that we will eventually get there where it's it's the same as you, you're going to expect the same care and love that goes into a non-alcoholic drink that you expect from kitchens, for example. You expect any any really great um, restaurant to put a, love, a lot the same love and care into their vegan and vegetarian dishes that they do in their their full menu. Mm-hmm. And that's really where bars are, are you know, heading to right now. Yeah, no, that's a that, that's a good point, because uh, Emily, it draws my mind back to this question of um you know the socioeconomic status of uh, of many of the people in the in the alcohol free movement because you said it's usually usually higher and um, there was a, a whiteness to it as you said um, as well. Uh, it, it brings to mind sort of almost the identity wars that have gone on in the United States over alcohol. Like you sort of judge who people are by what they drink. Um, I mean, is there? Is there an aspect of that to this? Do you have any idea what, why, at least for now, there, the alcohol-free movement is particularly active amongst a smaller group of people? I think it links back to what we were talking about in relation to themes of health and well-being and wellness. I mean, these movements are, you know, we tend to see a similar de- demographic here in terms of kind of white young women. Um, so I think, you know, because of the crossovers between that movement and the kind of move to sober curiosity or mindful drinking, I think that explains some of it. Um, I think there's a lot going on, you know, in terms of certainly within the UK, things like accessibility. So if you live in uh, a rural working class area, for example, it might be much more difficult to get hold of decent zero proof options down your local pub. If you live in London, um, and Elva talked about this as well, you know, dry bars that are popping up, you know, it might be much easier to access these kind of products. So I think it's partly to do with accessibility, visibility. There might be a gender dynamic going on there in terms of the kind of historic links between beer and masculinity and, Mm. and, and, you know, kind of masculinity and drinking and being able to hold one's drink that, again, make it more difficult for men to kind of opt out. Uh, Whereas for women, you know, not having a drink or having a zero-proof drink might be easier, particularly because it can be more readily tied into ideas of, you know, health or even like wanting to cut calories or watching one's weight. So I think there are definitely things going on here that mean that it's perhaps easier for certain groups or demographics than others to access uh, these markets and these kind of spaces and communities. Do you expect the continued growth of uh, the number of people who say they no longer drink? Yes, that's a really good question. And actually, some researchers have speculated that we need to consider the possibility of what they've called delayed onset, which is actually that young people might be drinking less now and they're starting drinking later, but they might eventually catch up with older cohorts. Um, So the jury's out. I think we need to wait and see what happens to drinking practices. But I think from my perspective, I I do get the sense that this is part of a bigger ongoing trend, um, as Elva touched on as well. And, And I think as we heard in... Um, in one of the clips, this idea that actually um, zero-proof drinks aren't going away. If anything, the market is growing and it's been projected to continue to grow. So I think alongside that, we will continue to see a decline or at least a stabilizing in the number of young people who don't want to consume alcohol. Yeah. So maybe that gives a partial explanation to uh, the what Gallup found here in the United States, because it didn't just look at, y- at younger adults. The, the company looked at uh, Adults 18 to 34, 35 to 54, and 55 and older. Now, in that 18 to 34 group that we've been talking about, yes, we have seen that quite dramatic drop in the percentage of people who say they drink between the year 2000 and now. However, amongst middle-aged adults, those 35 to 54s, it stayed the same, roughly 68 to 69%. In older adults, 55 and older, 
It's grown. The number of people who say they drink has grown. In the year 2000, it was just just under 50 percent, and now it's almost 60 percent. So really, really interesting uh, trends there. Elva, in the last few minutes that we have, I would love to lean on your expertise um, regarding those zero-proof recipes. <laughs> because for for someone who maybe wants to give it a try, um, do you have a suggestion of a beer or wine to try or a, a cocktail to mix? You know, so if you, if I would say if you love a gin, if you pick the one drink that you love and try to find a substitute for it. If you're a gin girl, I'm a gin girl. I'm an unapologetic, unapologetic uh, gin and tonic girl. There are fantastic stand-ins right now for almost every type of that back bar, for example, there's Ritual that comes out of out of Chicago. Liars, it's spelled L-Y-R-E-S. They have all these substitutes that replicate a sub, and there are substitutes. They have like fake Campari. You can make a fake Negroni. You can make a fake gin and tonic, and they have that complexity. Um, there's really you can you can find fake Negronis um, that are bottled that are absolutely fantastic. So just you know say okay, I like I like tequila. Let's find a fake tequila. Um, and there are actually so many really great products out there. But the ones I love, the ones I absolutely love are the ones that have completely new flavors that are just complex and floral. And for that, I point to Everleaf, which actually comes out of London. There are, they are in the, in the U.S. and they are absolutely fantastic. Well, also, I mean, once again, hats off to the beer makers because they've done an excellent job. And uh, if you're looking for an authentic beer taste without the alcohol, um, they've made huge strides in the past several years. Um, Emily, I'm going to turn to you. We have about 30 seconds left for, for a last thought here. I mean, overall, it sounds like you're coming away from or your research is showing things that are overall positive, right? Because alcohol is a social medium will remain important. Uh, but uh, in terms of health reasons seems pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd always take this with a pinch of salt because <laughs> yeah. I think, like I said at the start of the show, when we dig into the reasons young people are drinking less, I do think some of that is bound up with with kind of anxieties and worries about the future, um, kind of this need to be always on and maybe not relax in the same way as older cohorts. So whilst it is a positive change, I, th- I think we do need to be mindful of what else is going on for, for young people, particularly in relation to kind of mental health and the pressures to be kind of productive. Um, and we need to kind of not lose sight of that, I think, whilst also, you know, recognising the kind of positive shifts um, in the in the in a kind of people's relationships with alcohol. So, yeah, I think a word of caution and a word of celebration together there, perhaps. Well, Emily Nichols, sociologist at the University of York, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat to you. And Elva Ramirez, author of Zero Proof, 90 non-alcoholic recipes for mindful drinking. Elva, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I am so honoured. Thank you so much. This is On Point.